Hello and happy Monday, Relatable listeners. This is the first ever Relatable episode that is on a Monday. I hope you guys are excited. My apologies to those of you who did vote Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I totally understood your reasoning behind that. It was already Tuesday, Thursday. Why not just add a Wednesday in? But the reasoning that I got from the majority of you guys who voted on this uh, was that this allows a day in between the podcast or two days between Friday and Monday for you guys to get caught up. And it's less time that you have to wait between Friday and Monday. Between Thursday and Tuesday was kind of uh, a long time. You guys might forget about me. Now you can't forget about me. I'm going to make it impossible for you to forget about me. I also suggested a structure for our podcast every week. And that is that Monday, I'm going to catch you up on some of the latest news, and we're going to analyze that as we always do. And then Wednesday are going to be our Wednesdays are going to be our theological days. And then Friday, it's going to be a conversation or Q&A. Maybe Friday will be uh, different sometimes, but that's the structure that I have in mind right now. And of course, we can change as you guys give me feedback and say, Actually, I would like theology to be on Mondays and news on Wednesdays, and I hate the conversations that you have. Okay, I'll listen to you. I'll pull the audience, and we'll kind of see what's best. As you guys know, I listen to what you guys say. I want a show that is good for you, or at least for the majority of you. I can't please everyone. I'm never going to please everyone. Lord knows that's the truth. But I want a show that you guys think is useful, that you guys think is helpful, and that fits with your schedule and helps you throughout your week. A good balance of information and inspiration. My only fear is starting with the the Monday news is that I'm going to get y'all riled up uh, on Monday morning before work and you're going to be mad about whatever news I talk about. So I'll try to always end on a positive note. That's what we're going to do today. But before we get to all the good stuff, I have to tell you guys about something. I know that you guys have missed me talking about pillows. I know that you guys have. I've gotten lots of emails from you guys being like, can you please talk more about pillows? I really missed you talking about pillows. I'm just kidding. I haven't gotten any emails saying that, but I am going to talk about pillows. I'm going to talk once again about my bolster sleep pillow. Now, guys, ever since I've gotten huge in my pregnancy, I've been really uncomfortable while I'm sleeping. And like, sometimes I even have insomnia. That's a problem. So I have relied on my bolster sleep pillow, which as you know, is made by Tencel. And so it has this cooling agent to help me be comfortable. And now they have a body pillow. It's like a C-shaped body pillow for us pregos or not pregos who need to get comfortable in our sleep. Uh, it's amazing and everyone should try it. And if you use promo code Allie, A-L-L-I-E, you get 12% off your whole purchase. So you go to bolstersleep.com. You get you a regular pillow. You get you a C pillow, especially for those who are prego like me and you can't sleep on your back or your stomach anymore. Um, And you will be so happy because sleep matters. It helps you be smarter. It helps you work harder. It helps you be a much nicer person. I really can't function without eight hours of sleep. And so I rely on my bolster sleep pillow to make sure that I deliver great podcasts for you guys. Otherwise, otherwise I wouldn't get any sleep and you guys wouldn't get a good relatable podcast. So bolstersleep.com, use promo code Allie, 12% off your purchase. You will be glad you did. Okay. We're going to talk about this thing called the privilege of ignorance, which is actually only a privilege afforded to particular people on the left. And to do that, we are going to analyze what happened with 
Ilhan Omar and this so-called anti-bigotry resolution the Democrats passed uh, in Congress. And then we are also going to talk about the privilege of ignorance that AOC is able to have, but that is not afforded to other people. At the end, though, I'm going to give you a pregnancy update because that's a great positive way to, to end this episode so that you're not going into work thinking, oh my gosh, this country is going to hell in a handbasket. Plus, that's not true anyway because God is in control. So we're going to go through all of that. I'll give you a pregnancy update at the end. Also, I just wanted to note, thank you guys. Uh, for those of you who reached out to Spotify about taking my podcast down, thank you so much. Honestly, I don't know why it happened. It's pretty easy to jump to the conclusion as a conservative, particularly as a conservative Christian, that Spotify censored my podcast and decided to take it down. Last Thursday, we talked about the United Methodist Church decision. We talked about biblical marriage, which is a controversial topic in and outside of Christian circles. And then it was taken down later Thursday afternoon. A lot of you guys alerted me about that. And we reached out to Blaze TV, reached out to Spotify. A bunch of you guys sent me messages that you reached out to Spotify as well, threatening to cancel. Some of you did cancel. A lot of people were talking about it on Twitter. And then the next day it was restored. So was it a glitch? Did something random just happen? It accidentally, the entire show was taken down and then it was put back up? Or was it censored because of the content of my podcast? And then because of the complaints and the support of you guys that it was put back up? Uh, I don't really know. What we do know is that Spotify uses Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, an, uh, an absolute, I don't even know how to describe it, an absolute crazy left-leaning organization that calls anything center or to the right of center hate speech, literally everything. It calls Prager University, this hateful organization, everything that takes any kind of Christian or conservative stance, the SPLC says is hateful and hate speech. Spotify uses them to wade through their content and decide what's hateful and what's not. I would not be surprised if the SPLC hates the relatable podcast. Uh, so I don't know though. I don't know. They wouldn't give comment to you guys. They said it might be a licensing issue, which we know for a fact is not true. And then when some of you guys pushed them on it, they said, oh, uh, well, we can't comment anymore on that, but we'll, we'll keep looking into this. I think it's a little bit fishy. Again, I don't really know. I'm not one of those conservatives who thinks every time I don't get enough likes on a picture, it's because I'm being shadow banned. You've got some people that do that. Sometimes that's not true. Sometimes like your content just isn't isn't popular right now where you're not getting a lot of retweets. It's not always some nefarious plot that's going on behind the scenes against you. Sometimes it is. We've seen that for sure, especially on YouTube. But sometimes it's not. I'm not the kind of person that you're going to hear complain about that a whole lot. I try to give them sometimes the benefit of the doubt, these tech giants, but sometimes things are just too suspicious and you gotta ask why. So we did, and I appreciate uh, your support on that. Outnumbered, I was on last week on Friday, and that was really fun. Thank you guys for watching. You guys sent me pictures of you guys watching it on your laptops, and I really appreciate that. I had a really good time doing that. I loved it. Fastest hour of my life. So anyway, thank you guys for all of that. Uh, I am going to move past the personal stuff, and we're going to start talking about what we are actually discussing today. As I said last week, Democrats passed this anti-bigotry resolution. And the reason that they passed it was because of freshman Congresswoman Ilhan Omar from Minnesota. We talked about her last week. She is from Somalia. She is a refugee. She is also 
a Muslim, not necessarily pertinent to what we're about to talk about, but it kind of is because she because she's been criticized for anti-Semitism. He and she and some of her defenders have said it's because she's a Muslim and people are just Islamophobic. And of course, that's ridiculous and untrue. So the reason why this anti-bigotry resolution was passed in the first place was because of her anti-Semitic comments. Some of those anti-Semitic comments date uh, as far back as 2012, at least public comments, where she tweeted that she believes that Israel is hypnotizing the world and that people need to wake up to the evils of Israel. Uh, she also claimed on Twitter that uh, people who support Israel, that it's all about the Benjamins. Uh, she also said that uh, allegiance to APAC is making some Republicans and people in Congress loyal to Israel. Uh, APAC is a pro-Israel organization that does support some politicians, but certainly doesn't support politicians monetarily nearly as much as an organization like Planned Parenthood does. And APAC is not necessarily a right-leaning organization. Um, it supports left-leaning politicians quite frequently. And Republicans, some Republicans do have a problem with APAC. So she said that people who support Israel are controlled by APAC, controlled by the Benjamins, and also claimed that people in America who support who support Israel are guilty of having dual loyalty. So the reason why she is being accused of being anti-Semitic is not because she's criticizing Israel, because people, of course, are in their right to criticize Israel. People, of course, because of the First Amendment, are in their right to say anything they want to. But the reason why she is being accused of anti-Semitic, of being anti-Semitic because of these comments, isn't just because she said, you know what, I don't agree with some of the decisions that Israel has made. And uh, so let's have a conversation about foreign policy. Let's have a conversation about uh, our policy in relation to Israel. She hasn't actually expressed any coherent argument against Netanyahu, the leader of Israel, or uh, against uh, Israel's policies. She has simply said these anti-Semitic tropes. The reason why they are anti-Semitic tropes is because there is this uh, grand conspiracy that has been used against the Jewish people for a very long time, uh, saying that Jews are controlling the world with their money and people who support the Jewish people are secretly more pro-Israel than they are uh, pro-America, that they are exercising this dual loyalty that she's talking about. There's this conspiracy that they own all the banks and that the Jews are in charge and we need to be against the Jews. And so she is perpetuating these tropes and uh, she's being called out for it. And quite frankly, I think that Ilhan Omar is completely surprised that not everyone in Congress, not even every Democrat in Congress agrees with her. I think that this anti-Semitism and these stereotypes of the Jewish people are so embedded into her heart and mind that she really might not have realized that they're not mainstream ideas and that people do have very strong feelings about Israel. And it's not because of dual loyalty, but it's because they're an ally. They're the only democracy in the Middle East. They are the only country in the Middle East that recognizes the rights of its people, especially religious minorities. And so if she is going to take a stand against Israel, which has been such a faithful ally to the United States for so long, she simply needs to be able to articulate a logical position against them. That's not saying she shouldn't be a critic. That's not saying she shouldn't start conversations and have legitimate questions about our policy in relation to Israel or what Israel is doing in relation to Palestine. Sure, she can have questions about that. That's fine. But so far, she's been unable to do that. She has only criticized them in a way that perpetuates and uses anti-Semitic tropes. She has been called out by Democrats, which is originally why they were going to pass a resolution condemning anti-Semitism that mentioned Ilhan Omar by name. 
But through the course of a few days, a Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, decided that's not going to be the case anymore. They're not going to have a resolution specifically calling out anti-Semitism or even mentioning Ilhan Omar. Instead, they're going to have an overarching, a very generalized uh, anti-bigotry resolution that calls out things like white supremacy, that calls out things like or other forms of hatred, transphobia, homophobia, whatever. Oh, and anti-Semitism is also included in there. And oh, this has nothing to do with Ilhan Omar. And this is actually Nancy Pelosi saying that this has nothing to do with Ilhan Omar. Uh, the incident that happened with, uh, I don't think our colleague is anti-Semitic. I think she has a different experience in the use of words, doesn't understand that some of them are fraught with meaning that she what, didn't realize. But nonetheless, that we had to address. Um, okay. I, I would really like to know, truly, I would like to know how Ilhan Omar feels about being patronized in this way. So you just heard Nancy Pelosi. Basically, she said, Ilhan Omar, she's just this, she's just a, she's got a different uh, experience with words. And she's just this silly little foreign girl. This is what Nancy Pelosi is saying, who just doesn't understand words. She just doesn't understand concepts. So we need to go easy on her. If I were Ilhan Omar, I'd be like, girl, I know what I'm saying. Okay. I am a grown woman. I know what I'm saying. I'm an anti-Semite. Okay. Like if I were Ilhan Omar, like, I feel like I would just come out and say that. Like, I feel like I would just be like, you know what? I'm tired of being treated. Like I'm a five-year-old. I'm tired of being treated. Like I'm dumb. I'm an adult and I take responsibility for my words. But of course she's not saying that. And we've got other Democrats as well who are saying, yeah, you know, she just doesn't know. She just she just doesn't know. We just need to coddle her. We just need to treat her with these kid gloves because she just doesn't know she's from she's from a different country. And of course, you have uh, AOC and you've got Rashida Tlaib, who are also taking up for her, saying she's not she's not anti-Semitic. This is really Republicans' fault, and we need to stick up for her. We have Linda Sarsour coming to Congress, trying to uh, convince members of Congress. She made a video about this. This is not just hearsay. Trying to convince members of Congress to make this a broad resolution rather than just condemning anti-Semitism. Of course, Linda Sarsour is the leader of the Women's March, who is known. She is known. She is known for being an anti-Semite, but also... Um, uh, what's her, her name? Tamika Mallory is also known for being an anti-Semite for calling uh, uh, a Louis Farrakhan the greatest of all time who said that Jews are termites and are of the devil. So we've all we've got this connected network of anti-Semites and sympathizers to anti-Semites like AOC that makes this all make sense because the, the bottom line is that Democrats don't really care about anti-Semitism. They just don't because... To them, Jewish people, they just haven't been oppressed enough. They, they, really, they just haven't been oppressed enough. They don't know the struggle the way that someone like Ilhan Omar does. They don't know the struggle of a Muslim woman from Somalia. They don't have as many oppression points um, as someone like Ilhan Omar does. And so we just kind of need to minimize it. We just kind of need to brush over anti-Semitism. We just kind of need to pretend like it's not really that big of a deal. Um, and we need to make sure that this is, uh, this is an all-encompassing, very general, non-accusatory to little Miss Ilhan Omar, who apparently is only five years old. 
And we just need to go soft on all of this because really, are Jewish, do Jewish people really have it that hard? That's basically what Democrats are communicating right now. Um, <laughs> Ilhan Omar has decided that she's not really going to apologize. But she told CNN, she told CNN that this is exciting, that all of this is exciting. She said, um, you know, it's not surprising. This is a quote that she gave to CNN. I think it is actually exciting because we are finally able to have conversations that we weren't really willing to. It is really important for us to get a different lens about what peace in that region could look like and the difficult kind of conversations we need to have about allies. Okay, I'm fine with that. Like, I am fine with talking about the peace in that region and what that will look like. People have been talking about that for a long time, girl, and they have been doing it without... Uh, invoking anti-Semitic tropes. You seem unable to do that. You have not talked about how we reach peace in that region. You haven't talked about the the relationship that we have with our allies. You haven't talked about that. You've said the people that support Israel are controlled by money and are guilty of dual loyalty. You are an anti-Semite. And Democrats are so unwilling and so unable to call that out because, like I said, because of intersectionality, because of identity politics, because... They say, you know, Jewish people or they believe that Jewish people just aren't quite as oppressed um, as everyone else. They're just not high enough on the intersectionality totem pole, despite the fact that I think it was according to CBS. I think this was the source. I'm just remembering this this quote that I read and took a screenshot of uh, that even though Jewish people only make up two uh, percent of our population, 58.6, I think, 58% around there. Or was it 56.8? I'll have to go back and look at that. The majority of the hate crimes have been committed against Jewish people. Even though they only make up 2% of the population, you want to tell me that they don't deserve a resolution explicitly calling out anti-Semitism? The other reason why Democrats are so unable and unwilling to push back against someone like Ilhan Omar or AOC or Rashida Tlaib is because they know that these freshman congresswomen have millennials in their pocket. And because millennials are very radical, because millennials are largely uneducated in history and in what's going on in the world. They are indoctrinated by postmodern professors and public schooling, quite frankly, for the most part, not all public schools, but a lot of public schools. Um, and they just don't know things. And so they're buying into this feelings-based socialism, this feelings-based idea that American is America is this imperialist aggressor. And they are buying in to a lot of what AOC and Rashida Tlaib and uh, Ilhan Omar are saying. And they know, Nancy Pelosi knows, that for the Democratic Party to survive, they've got to get that millennial vote. So they're not going to exoriate someone like Ilhan Omar. They're not going to uh, hang someone like AOC out to dry. They're not going to separate themselves from them. They are trying to show... Uh, Nancy Pelosi is trying to show, no, I'm not part of the Democratic establishment. I, I'm on board uh, with this new progressive uh, wing of the Democratic Party. And so the extremists like Ilhan Omar, AOC, etc., are now carrying the party. AOC joked, or actually she didn't joke. She was actually saying this a couple weeks ago. She said, I'm in charge. She was talking about the Green New Deal. And we all laughed at her. And we said, you're not in charge of anything. Actually, she's right. She is right. Freshman congresswomen are in charge of the Democratic Party. Nancy Pelosi has completely lost control. She knows that the only way, or she thinks anyway, the only way for the Democratic Party to survive 
is to hand over control to someone like Ilhan Omar. So she's not going to call out her anti-Semitism. No. But when it comes to Steve King, the Republican who said to the New York Times, he says it was out of context. But the quote that we have is saying, you know, what's wrong with white supremacy? What's what's really wrong with this? And Republicans and Democrats said, whoa, 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 that's not okay." And then they kind of went back and said he's been saying some suggestive racist remarks for a long time. They stripped him of his committee assignments. That has not happened to Ilhan Omar because there's a double standard. And we see that most especially in the media who has given cover to Democrats who shamefully brought in this resolution from anti-Semitism to bigotry uh, in general. The headlines for some some organizations, not all, but for some organizations is that 23 Republicans voted no, voted no on this anti-bigotry resolution. And then AOC says this. She says this on Twitter. Where's the outrage over the 23 GOP members who voted no on a resolution condemning bigotry today? Oh, there's none. I love when people like space and indent their tweets to make it more dramatic. It's like the more classy clappy hands. Oh, there's none, she says. Did they get called out, raked over, ambushed in halls and relentlessly asked why not? No. Okay. Got it. All right. All right. I am done believing that she's just not smart. She's got to be the most deliberately dishonest person, the most deliberately dishonest person in Congress. I don't know. That's really, really difficult. She's up there with Maisie Hirono and Nancy Pelosi. She's up there, though. This is so dishonest and so deceptive. It's unreal. So Democrats, afraid to specifically call out anti-Semitism, afraid to specifically call out the source of this whole problem, the whole reason we're even having this conversation, Ilhan Omar expands it to an anti-bigotry resolution that basically means nothing. And I think demeans Jewish people who truly are the victims of hate crime and anti-Semitism in this country. They're not the ones at fault, according to AOC. It's the Republicans who refuse to vote on it. The reasons Republicans... Uh, The reason Republicans refuse to vote on this isn't because they're pro-bigotry, you lying girl. It is because they want to call out anti-Semitism, which was the reason why this resolution was drafted in the first place. It's because they want to have an honest conversation about the problem that is at hand, not because they're excited about bigotry. And she knows that. She knows that these organizations and media outlets who are reporting, oh, 23 Republicans, they must like bigotry and they're not afraid that voters know it. Are you kidding? Really? Really? That's the headline. It's not that Democrats couldn't even uh, muster up a tiny bit of moral courage in order to call out something that is blatantly evil and wrong. And look, Whatever. We don't have to oust Ilhan Omar from Congress. Sure. If you want to give her the benefit of the doubt yet again, which I think is stupid, by the way. But if you want to give her the benefit of the doubt yet again, all right. But at least have some honesty, at least have some wherewithal, at least have the bravery to come forward and say that this is wrong. You can't even do that. It's crazy, 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 Um, including I don't know why I just said that. Speaking of AOC, she was at South by Southwest over the weekend. Uh, She always has some interesting things to say. She teaches me things that I quite frankly didn't know. So here she is saying that Ronald Reagan was basically a racist. And one perfect example, I think a perfect example of how 
special interests and the powerful have pitted white working class Americans against brown and black working class Americans in order to just screw over all working class Americans um, is, um, is Reaganism in the 80s when he started talking about welfare queens. Mm -hmm. So you think about this image, welfare queens, and what he was really trying to talk about was this, he was painting this photo, he's painting this like really resentful vision of essentially uh, black women who were doing nothing that were sucks on our country, right? First of all, I just want to acknowledge like she has a hard time with words. We talked about how Nancy Pelosi said that uh, Ilhan Omar has a different understanding of words. So does so does Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I'm not trying to be I'm not trying to issue like an ad hominem attack right now. She just doesn't she does not articulate her thoughts very well, even if in her mind she articulates them or is able to come up with cohesive thoughts well, which she may very well be able to. She doesn't communicate them very well. She just doesn't. Whoever decided that they were going to pick AOC to be the messenger for far left ideas didn't do that great of a job in picking a good communicator. Now, obviously, Obviously, she is effective in some ways or else she wouldn't have the following that she did. It's actually said that out at South by Southwest, she had a bigger audience than some presidential candidates did. She's insanely popular. So I'm not saying she's doing everything wrong. Obviously, she's very relatable and she is reaching people that were previously unreached. But when it comes to actually articulating an argument, she just fumbles, which is probably why and smartly, I think she denies any kind of request for debate or difficult conversation. She's just, she fumbles when people ask her difficult questions like, okay, uh, you made a mistake in saying this thing, like Anderson Cooper said in the interview. And she says, well, people are more concerned with being factually correct than morally right. She just doesn't say things very well. So I'm very confused by her by her argument that Ronald Reagan was a racist. I'm not saying that the whole welfare queen thing didn't happen and that that probably wasn't right, but her attempt at formulating something logical about Ronald Reagan being a racist doesn't make any sense. I mean, I understand that when your historical knowledge dates back to about 2018, you might not remember that Ronald Reagan was uh, responsible for the amnesty of the 1980s, the amnesty that, quite frankly, I don't agree with, and that a lot of conservatives today do not agree with. It just didn't end up the way that he wanted it to. He kind of wanted a clean slate. He thought, okay, I'm just going to give all of these people amnesty. We're going to figure out the border situation. We're going to figure out illegal immigration. It just didn't work that way. Maybe a good intent. It just didn't work that way. But for any Democrat on the left to say that Ronald Reagan, the last time that illegal immigrants were given amnesty and the way that it was given in the 1980s was under Ronald Reagan. And so for them to say that he was a racist, I'm just confused as to what qualifies as a racist because now we're saying that not giving amnesty is racist. So what was he for authoring the amnesty in the 1980s? I just, I don't understand. And also we're talking about pitting working class white people against working class black and brown people. Have you met Barack Obama? That's all he did for the past eight years. All you have to do is look at statistics to see 
Americans' view on race between Republicans and Democrats in 2009 versus 2017 and how radical Democrats got in believing um, in systemic racism that they didn't believe in in 2009. Do you honestly think systemic racism uh, became more prevalent from 2009 to 2017? Of course not. While we had the most progressive and uh, the only black president in history, you really think that systemic racism got more popular during that time? Of course it didn't. Of course it didn't. And yet their views on race changed. And so if you want to talk about someone who pitted white people against black and brown people during his presidency, look no further than Barack Obama. That's not to say that all Republican presidents have been perfect, that all Republican presidents have been racial reconcilers. Of course, that's not true. Of course, that's not true. But don't come for Ronald Reagan. Okay, just don't. I will go to the mat on that one. Uh, She also goes to say in the same interview that she, we have to stop thinking about paying more or socialism, basically, like her socialist plan, Green New Deal. We have to stop thinking of paying more as a loss uh, for someone else's gain. We have to think of it as an investment in society. She says it's not a zero-sum game. We should not be having a zero-sum mentality. She's actually answering a question by Bill Nye, the science guy, who said that people are fearful of giving their money to pay for someone else. And she says the way to combat that fear is to realize that you're making an investment in someone else's life. And this is not a loss. You are, everyone is gaining. Okay. What she doesn't seem to understand is that people are losing money that they don't want to give. So it is a loss. People don't want to be uh, forced to invest in something that they don't want to invest in. People are fine to invest. Americans are insanely generous, but people don't want to be forced by the government to pay for everyone else's health care. So in 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 that, that the, their health care, the quality of their health care, the choice of their health care is diminished, which is exactly what would happen in a Medicare for all system. People don't want to pay for everyone else's college, knowing how much it's going to cost us. Uh, the Green New Deal is apparently, it's estimated by a center-right group to cost $93 trillion. People don't want to pay that because they don't believe that the return on the investment is going to be good enough for them and their family. That's what that's what people aren't comfortable with. It's not that they're not willing to invest in the well-being of other people. People do that freely all of the time, uh, getting really nothing in return except for the joy of being altruistic. People invest in in something where they do get something in return, but they are able to see or make a good bet on that return on investment. But with far left progressive policies, we're really unable to estimate what that return would be and if it would actually benefit us. And so she is saying, no, just believe me, believe the government, because the government has such a great reputation of taking care of our money and investing it well and giving us a great return, right? She's saying, just believe me, just believe the government that we are going to invest your money in a way that benefits everyone. People don't want to be forced to do that. That's what she doesn't understand. It's not fear, it's practicality. And AOC does not want to deal with the practicalities of socialism. That's exactly why whenever she gets asked in interviews, how are you gonna pay for this? She says, you just pay for it. She doesn't wanna deal with the practicalities of it. It's not about fear. It's not about selfishness. It's about people saying, okay, I'm about to make this huge investment and I'm about to change my life. Like with the Green New Deal, everyone's lives would be changed. Everyone's lives would be affected by this on a daily basis. People are practically asking, okay, I've got a family to feed. 
I've got goals that I want to reach. I've got things that I want to do. How is this investment going to affect my life? How is it going to affect the well-being of my family? She doesn't want to deal with those practical questions. She doesn't want to deal with that. She wants us to have the same idealistic view of socialism that she does. She doesn't want us to worry about the nitty gritty. She doesn't want us to worry about the dollar signs. She doesn't want us to worry about how it's going to affect our lives. We're supposed to buy into this green new dream without thinking about it. And quite frankly, people just aren't willing to do that. I think people are smarter than that. Millennials might not be smarter than that because they've, a lot of them have never invested in anything, but most people are smarter than that. And she doesn't want, she doesn't want to believe that because this is just the right thing to do. Uh, she also said that while capitalism puts capital first, democratic socialism puts people first. And I understand where she's getting that idea in her mind, but when you, where you see socialism implemented, you don't actually see people being put first. And I know the classic conservative example is Venezuela or North Korea or any other totalitarian regime, but it's true. They separate socialism from statism, but it can't actually be separated. Always when you give the, uh, give the government more money and more power, uh, the people are not put first. It's just a different person in power. It's just a different entity in power. And she believes, as all democratic socialists do, that the government is trustworthy to take care of your money and to meet all of your needs. And we know that it's not. We see throughout history that it's not. We see in Venezuela that it's not. We see in North Korea that it's not, that power corrupts and absolute power uh, corrupts absolutely. It doesn't matter whether or not it's democratic socialism or socialism. Democratic socialism is just concentrated power that you chose, which makes you dumb. So... I don't believe that a socialist society puts people first. Now, she could point to Scandinavia and the Scandinavian countries, but they're not truly socialist countries. They have a welfare state. They have a flat tax system. Most of the countries do. And they do uh, have things like extensive paternal leave or, uh, yeah, parental leave. And uh, they do have, the government does provide a, a lot for the people through their tax money, but they also have a free market. They also have low corporate tax rates. They also have a lot of competition and they also have extremely small countries that are almost all homogenous. And so it's a completely different story. And that's not socialism. If that's what she wants, that's a welfare state. That's not socialism. It's different. So I would like her to point to a true socialistic economy, a true socialist country, a true socialist country that puts the people first. It just doesn't happen because the reality is capitalism is the most compassionate economic system. If a system can be compassionate, the most compassionate economic system that has ever existed. Uh, it is the greatest economic catalyst for social progress because we, the people, we get to decide where we want to shop, the people that we want to do business with. You don't want to do business with a bigot. Don't do business with a bigot. Don't buy his products. There will be someone down the street who opens up shop that you can buy from that you're comfortable with, uh, with buying from. You want to operate your story with Christian values, even though some people don't like it. Okay, those people don't have to buy from you, but there's going to be a corner of the market that wants to. Uh, in a capitalistic society, we, the people, get to determine what is valuable and what is not. We have options. Therefore, we have competition. And because we have competition, we have quality. Uh, free markets, free trade, property rights, entrepreneurship, these Western capitalistic ideas have done more to slash the global poverty rate and therefore slash suffering than any 
other economic force. Uh, foreign aid, we've even seen, does not help in the long run countries that are poor because it's a, it's a problem of power. It's a problem of corruption. Foreign aid does not work, but supply and demand does. Trade does. AOC, um, sorry, just got something in my throat. She also says, uh, she goes on to say that CEOs are not creating wealth. The people are. Okay, kind of. That's not to, uh, of course, the people who are, the, the people who are working are booing these companies. And of course, their work is important from the, the least paid employee on up to middle management. Of course, these employees are very important. But this is classic Marxism, classic classism, where we, de- we demean the people in power as not really working hard and as just greedy. Are some CEOs greedy? Absolutely. Do some CEOs not take care of their employees very well? Absolutely. But this idea that CEOs, which this is perpetuated on Twitter by leftist blue check marks all the time, the idea that CEOs haven't built anything, that they haven't created anything, is absolutely crazy. It's crazy. We already know that Howard Schultz, CEO of Starbucks, former CEO of Starbucks, uh, came from nothing. He built the company from basically nothing. Or I think he actually bought the company and then he built it from that. That CEOs don't contribute to our economy, that they're not the ones building the company. Of course they are. There's a reason why they make so much money. They have a lot more responsibility than the person does uh, than the person does at the bottom. That's not to say that the person at the bottom doesn't have a really important job, but the CEO has a lot more to think about than that person does. That person has one task that they have to finish and the CEO has about a million and he is responsible to a lot more people than the person at the bottom of the totem pole does. And so I agree with AOC. She also says how it's important that workers have rights. Yes, of course, I believe that workers should have rights. Do I believe that workers should be treated fairly? Do I uh, think that employees should, if the company can afford it, have good benefits? Of course, I think all of these things are great. We probably agree on that. But I think that we disagree on how we get there and the means that we have to take uh, in order to uh, accomplish workers' rights. We probably have a very different idea of what that means. But she has the privilege of ignorance, as does Ilhan Omar, as does Rashida Tlaib. You remember she said at the very beginning, we're going to impeach this mf talking about Donald Trump. They have the privilege of ignorance because they are... Uh, they are young, they are fresh, they are new, they are women of color, and that they are just shaking things up. Apparently, that's the most important thing now. All you have to do is say crazy things, especially if you're someone on the left, to be seen as some kind of trailblazer. You don't actually have to accomplish anything or articulate any good arguments or ideas. You just have to shake things up and be bold and be brave and maybe even say some anti-Semitic things and uh, you'll apparently be lauded as heroes of the Democratic Party. And Nancy Pelosi sure as heck isn't going to say anything because, like I said, these people are leading the Democratic Party. OK, that's all I have to say about the privilege of ignorance. Now I want to, like I said, end on a positive note, because I also just want to remind you, I know we get into all of these things. It's so easy to get riled up and mad and say, how could anyone think the way that they do? And is our country going down the tubes because of all of this? And the answer is no. 
Uh, number one, because God is in control and he knows exactly what he's doing. And we are supposed to pray for all of our leaders, all of our elected officials, that God would give them wisdom, that God would give them grace. He is always in control. He is not surprised by anything. And he's not surprised by this move towards socialism. He's not surprised by any of this craziness. And it's our responsibility to trust him, to keep sharing the gospel, to love our neighbor and to speak truth where we are called to speak truth. So everything is okay. Everything is ultimately okay. That's our hope for a Christian. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be passionate. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't speak out about politics. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be involved in the system and in the process it, it does. But, but uh, that also means that we shouldn't despair and that we shouldn't let our minds be consumed by all of this. Um, also, I do think that there are a lot of people like you and me that care about this and that are put off by the radicalism that we're seeing on the left, even some moderates. I've gotten a lot of messages, uh, for example, about abortion, just how far left the, the left has gone on abortion has pushed a lot of people who were maybe in the middle or who were pro-choice saying, oh, this is no longer the party of pro-choice. This is the party of infanticide. This is no longer the party of welfare. This is the party of socialism. This is no longer the party of sensible uh, border policy. This is the party of open borders. You got a lot of people that just aren't that radical. And so they're moving over, they're asking questions. And so I do think that there's hope and there's an opportunity and a challenge for us to keep, to keep speaking truth. Um, okay, so that's what I wanna say about that. And then I wanna end on a positive note, giving you a pregnancy update. So I am now 24 weeks and a couple days. And so she's officially viable. And if you don't know, viable means there is a good chance that she would survive outside of the womb if I were to give birth really early. I don't know about you, but before I was pregnant, I didn't know. I just didn't know a lot, honestly, about gestation and about pregnancy. So if you don't know how far 24 weeks is, that's about, that's totally fine. It's about six months and, um, and it's 40 weeks total. I forgot what I was going to say. It's 40 weeks total. And so I'm much past halfway. Of course, you can give birth anywhere in between like it's usually 38 and 40, 41 weeks. They don't let you go too much past 40 weeks anymore. And so I'm much past halfway. It's going by really quickly. We haven't done anything, by the way. We've gotten a rocker. I'm about to order a stroller. Haven't ordered a crib yet. We haven't done anything to the nursery at all. It has to be like a, a nursery slash guest room. Haven't done anything. I've told myself, okay, it's going to be April. That's when I'm going to take care of all that because I'm writing my book and I really want to focus on that. And I can't, I can't worry. I cannot worry about um, anything else right now. So I'm hoping that she comes on or around her due date so I can get all the stuff done that I need to get done. Got about 16 more weeks until that. So I'm really excited. Everything's going well. We went to the doctor on Wednesday, uh, last Wednesday. And as far as we can tell, she is healthy and doing great. All of the tests have gone back, nor have come back normal. So praise God for that. Thank you guys for uh, praying for me and praying for the pregnancy. And for those of you who are pregnant as well, who have told me that you're pregnant, congratulations. For those of you who are single, who don't care about this, you can totally turn it off. As I've promised you, this is not going to become a pregnancy podcast or pregnancy Instagram page. And for those of you who haven't been able to get pregnant or who suffered a miscarriage, know that my heart is with you and that I understand. I, I can't understand from personal experience, but I understand how painful of a time this must be. And for you to still listen to this podcast and celebrate with me, it means a lot to me. And I know that's difficult. I know it's difficult to be on Instagram during that time. So I never want you to think that I've forgotten about you. 
or that I don't think about you every time I post something about pregnancy because I do and know that God is with you and that he's in control of all of it. Okay. That's all I have to say today, kind of all over the place, but I hope you guys enjoyed this first Monday podcast, Wednesday, talking theology. Uh, already, already know exactly what I'm going to talk about. So get ready for that. And I will see you then. 